You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Figuring out what went wrong during a rocket launch is all part of the iterative improvement process. And Rocket Lab did just that recently after their electron launch failure in September. But their root cause analysis had me tempted to dust off some of my old physics textbooks, and maybe you too. Okay, so offhand, how familiar are you with Passion's Law? (laughs) And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, don't worry, I got you. I promise it'll all make sense once you hear what Rocket Lab found. Today is November 9th, 2023. I'm Maria Varmazis, and this is T Minus. Rocket Lab sets a return to launch window for Electron. Astra founders offer to take the company private. ESA, Airbus, and Voyager sign an MOU. And our guest today is Aravind Ravichandran for our monthly overview segment on the Earth observation market. Let's dive in, shall we? Rocket Lab says the Electron will be back at Launch Complex 1 in Mahia, New Zealand at the end of this month to resume launches, with the next one scheduled to take Japan-based Earth imaging company IQPS Satellite, their QPS-SAR-5 specifically, to low Earth orbit. After many months of trying to chase down the root cause of the anomaly on the Electron back in September, Rocket Lab said that they've figured it out. And the reason was, well, a stack of very rare circumstances that just happened to line up in this instance. And here's what the company said. After more than seven weeks of extensive analysis of the mission's manufacturing test and flight data, the findings of the investigation overwhelmingly indicate that an unexpected electrical arc occurred within the power supply system, which provides high voltage to the Rutherford engine's motor controllers, shorting the battery packs that provide power to the launch vehicle's second stage. 
In other words, the conditions were, unfortunately, just right for things in the electron to hit the threshold under Passion's Law, which is the equation used to determine the voltage that you need to create an electric arc between two electrodes in a gas. And those conditions were, and I quote again, electricity in the presence of helium and nitrogen, while under a partial pressure environment, unrestrained by a fault in the high-voltage loom, and exacerbated by an alternating current, aligned at a point on the passion curve that allows an electrical arc to form and travel. TLDR, there was definitely some bad luck at play here. But Rocket Lab says they're not relying on luck to keep it all from happening again. They've put in place some enhanced testing processes for one thing, and a corrective measure to prevent another rare but unfortunate electrical arc from happening again. Take that, Passion's Law. Astra's not dead yet. In fact, it may be getting better. Maybe it'll go for a walk. The company throughout much of this year has been trying to keep its stock above a dollar a share to keep it from getting delisted from NASDAQ, but to little avail. And today, the company was thrown a lifeline from its founders, CEO Chris Kemp and CTO Adam London, who offered to the Astra board to buy out all of the outstanding Astra stock at $1.50 a share, which would take the company private again for a total of around $30 million. In their letter to the Astra board, London and Kemp said this, We believe that Astra's strategic objectives and business prospects will be best served as a private company. Taking the company private while delivering a meaningful premium to current shareholders allows for the best interests of shareholders as well as the company, its employees, and its customers to be met. And of course, we will update you as soon as we hear what the board decides. An update on the cuts from yesterday's Virgin Galactic story. During the investor call late yesterday, the company said that they plan to pause space flights in mid-2024 to focus resources on final assembly of the new Delta ships. 18% of its workforce have been laid off so far, with more phone calls expected today. The company currently has a headcount of less than 850 employees. CEO Michael Colglazier told investors that they forecast having sufficient capital to bring the first two Delta ships into service and achieve positive cash flow in 2026. Geospatial intelligence company Black Sky held their first quarterly report yesterday. They reported a net income of $675,000 for the third quarter, improving from a net loss of $13.1 million for the same period last year. The company brought in $21.3 million in third quarter revenue, up 26% from a year prior. Brian E. O'Toole, Black Sky CEO, said, Increased customer demand worldwide for Black Sky's space-based intelligence drove record revenues in the third quarter, and coupled with strong operating leverage and responsible cost management, keeps us on track to achieve positive adjusted EBITDA in Q4 this year. The Department of the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office, in partnership with the United States Space Force, is scheduled to launch the seventh mission of the X-37B orbital test vehicle next month from Kennedy Space Center, Florida. And the X-37B orbital, if you don't know, is a reusable space plane that can perform missions vital to understanding sustained operations in the space domain. In 2022, the X-37B set a new record of 908 days in orbit since its first mission in 2010. And the X-37B Mission 7 
will launch on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket for the first time with a wide range of tests and experimentation objectives. These tests include operating the reusable space plane in new orbital regimes, experimenting with future space domain awareness technologies, and investigating the radiation effects on materials provided by NASA. Sierra Space has successfully tested a new 5,500-pound force hypergolic rocket engine that the company calls a groundbreaking addition to its portfolio. The new engine delivers a vacuum-specific impulse of over 339 seconds, which Sierra Space says makes it very efficient for a storable engine. The engine is also designed for continuous throttling from 5,500 pounds force of thrust at 100% power down to 900 pounds force at 17% power, allowing for precise control and maneuverability. The European Space Agency, Airbus, and Voyager Space have signed a Memorandum of Understanding outlining their collaboration for the Starlab space station in the post-International Space Station era. The agreement outlines the party's intention to commonly foster science and technology development and explore the potential for collaboration in conjunction with post-ISS low-Earth orbit destinations. The partnership will initially focus on, but is not limited to, exploring opportunities for sustained access to space for Europe through the Starlab space station, which is expected to be launched in 2028. And staying in Europe for a moment, Italian satellite logistics company D-Orbit has announced a new investor in their current Series C funding round. Japanese company Marubeni Corporation leads the new funding, which includes Italian, European, and international investors— and is expected to exceed a total of 100 million euros. The orbit says it will use the new capital to strengthen its operations in Italy while accelerating progress on a global scale, with an emphasis on in-orbit servicing, space cloud computing, and orbital transportation. And that concludes our briefing for today. You'll find links to further reading in our show notes, along with a few stories that we didn't mention, One's on Putin calling on closer cooperation with China on military satellites. One on the Space Force updating its data library. And the third on space imagery companies capturing images of Gaza. All these and more at space.n2k.com. AT Minus Crew, if your business is looking to grow your voice in the industry, expand the reach of your thought leadership, or recruit talent, T Minus can help. We'd like to hear from you just send us an email at space at n2k.com or send us a note through our website so we can connect about building a program to meet your goals. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. 
Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Our guest today is Aravind Ravichandran for our monthly overview segment on the Earth observation market. Now, nations are proliferating their presence in orbit and making their own data available, but there doesn't seem to be much of a plan for what's going to happen to that data that they're collecting or how it's going to be used or how that data is going to be compatible with different applications. And I asked Aravind to provide us with his thoughts on that. Well, it's usually the thing which is popular in the space industry is to talk a lot about the things that happened before the launch and how about the things that happened after the launch. I, I think I don't hear that anymore as much, but then even until a couple of years ago, when I speak to investors, people who are outsiders, they just think that Earth Observation, okay, satellites are launched and then they will start making money uh, right off the boat and they are generating value because they have launched the satellite, the work is done because the, actually the hard part starts after right? Like, what is this data actually used for? Uh, is it really useful for that application? Um, because once only when you get to orbit, you'll figure out that, you know what, this quality is not good enough for measuring whatever you wanted to measure or see what we wanted to see. Uh, and in a lot of cases, the data has to be combined with other data sources. So if you're not interoperable, if the data is not interoperable, then it's not really serving its purpose. And, you know, even until like three, four years ago, if you are a new Earth observation company that are launching or a country who is launching a new satellite, it's not something that you care about. And then, you know, you realize now that if it's not interoperable with the larger, more popular uh, and more openly available, the Sentinels and the Landsats, your data is probably not useful because you have one satellite and they have had satellite data collection over 40, 50 years. So, if your data is not interoperable, and then you cannot really derive anything because your data point starts today. Uh, if you can inter- be interoperable with them, then your data point can extend and you can see over a period of time. So I think interoperability is, again, another thing. Um, also, more importantly, are they the right kind of people, especially for national missions? You know, Do they need to invest in education? Because if they have like one university, which I know quite a few countries have like one university that is having a proper remote sensing course, then, uh, you know, you may launch all the satellites you want, then the value is not going to be derived. Uh, or if you had expectations to have economic output from satellites, it's not going to be derived. I mean, maybe another country can derive those benefits, but if that country specifically does not have enough people, enough talent coming in, um, and that's, that's another, again, and it's another soft point, if you will. Uh, another point that I forgot to mention is more, where's the data available? Let's say you have the people and you've launched the satellites, but if you've not made the data easy to access, like how are people going to use it? And I know of a few countries that have done it and they are kind of rectifying it um, as we see it. India is a good example. India has released a new remote sensing policy recently, a few months ago, and that is really their goal. Uh, India has been collecting data for a couple of decades now, but the accessibility of the data has been kind of hindered only to a few select organizations and people. And now the new policy aims to rectify that by actually making it more easy, more open, um, and in some cases free to get the data. And it was really what the success of Landsat and now the European Sentinel program, uh, Copernicus program, is really because they made the data easy to access, free to access. And I think all of those factors are important for the success of an Earth observation strategy because 
you know, yes, satellites are great because they generate jobs. You get a lot of know-how about generating uh, creating or developing satellites. But then what comes after is important, especially if the country has like a long-term plan and they want to keep launching satellites, then they need to prove their case. And if, you know, none of these factors are met, then follow-up mission might not be approved in their local budget because they may ask, so what did we do with the satellite that we just launched? Really nothing? Then really the follow-up mission is not going to work out, right? Because they have nothing to show. Yep, absolutely. Um, and it's sort of a back question, but I'm wondering for commercial players, I mean, usually data availability is like one of the top priorities. I mean, that's, that is the name of the game in a lot of cases, but I'm wondering still, what are some lessons that uh, a commercial player can take from from this angle, so to speak. I mean, uh, it, data silos obviously are not helpful to anyone, especially if you want to make that available to a customer. Um, any other thoughts on that for commercial folks? Yeah, I think it's basically most of the points that we discussed. It's about having data available in a way that is easy, uh, with a user experience that is easy. And companies like SkyFi, uh, who are making it with you know very easy user experience that I can send it to anybody and they can go and download a satellite image. Now, obviously, there are players like Skywatch and Up42 on what I call the platform data distribution layer who are making it easy for developers with an API to access. So I think having the data available for both audiences is important because you also want, of course, to satisfy the experts who know how to use an API and have data available via an API, but also to invest in something that is a lot more uh, attractive for non-experts because they're probably the ones who are going to have to play with the data to create more applications. Um, and I think the other factors that I mentioned about interoperability, enabling people to fuse, store, fuse, and process data in a way that's efficient is probably what will lead to their success. And a lot of them have realized it, and either they're investing in their, either they've started doing it themselves, uh, and they're developing their own data management and data processing infrastructure, or they are partnering with the ones that I'm, uh, the names that I've mentioned to do that. So, you know, they can be sure that they are generating the data. Someone else is distributing it, but then the distribution is happening in a way that is scalable. Anybody can use it. Um, you know, it's interoperable. So it's almost like the data distribution layer is now becoming uh, or taking ownership of all of that factors of you know getting the right data, uh, fusing or allowing to fuse with different data sources, and also you know making it attractive for everyone uh, who wants to see a, see a satellite image. Absolutely. I want to make sure I give you a chance to sort of sum up, um, especially since it'll be another month uh, before we speak again. Uh, but in that time, we probably will have some solid Q3 data coming in from companies. Anything else that uh, sort of on the horizon for you over the next few weeks that you're interested in hearing about? Yeah, for sure. I think the uh, it's it's the time of the or is that time of the year when there's a SpaceX transport mission is going to go. Uh, I don't know of the exact date yet. It's probably next week or in a couple of weeks. But transport emissions are always exciting, and um, I have the data to now say that over the last eight transport emission Earth observation missions were the class with the most number of satellites. So even with the next one, I know of a few that are going to launch that are public. Uh, information, the few that will become public information soon about who's going to launch. And it's going to be yet another feast where, you know, transporter launches are always great because there's like, I don't know, 20, 30 companies from seven, eight, 10 different countries launching. So it's like, you know, almost like a party for all kind of, um, you know, space, uh, space nuts. So uh, it's going to be, it's going to be fun to look at transporter launches. So that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to finding out who's the ones that I don't know about that are going to launch. Maybe they're going to launch the first satellite. Maybe they're going to launch a satellite with a new sensor 
or with some kind of advancement that I know about that I know uh, didn't know about. So something that I'm going to track over November is basically that, uh, and I'm also you know seeing because end of November COP28 is going to begin Dubai. Um, so I'm curious to see if there's going to be any. Obviously, you know, we can talk about it in another episode about like the convergence between Earth observation and climate. So there's a huge synergy between the two um, areas. So I'm curious to see uh, over the next few weeks if we will see any announcements, if we'll see any, yeah, any developments that are going to be relevant to COP28 uh, that are going to come about either from the UAE itself or from, you know, the larger commercial companies out there in Earth observation. Uh, and yeah, so that's going to be a, a big focus uh, over this uh, next few weeks. We'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero-trust-ai. Welcome back. Just a quick closer for today's show, and it's a PSA from me to you if you're a NASA fan. Now, NASA has completely revamped its app. And did you know that they even had an app? Yep, NASA has an app. And it's called NASA Plus, and it's completely free. It's a streaming service and a really nice way to see the latest images and lots of live video, as well as documentaries about the cosmos, our planet, science, technology, engineering, and NASA past, present, and future. So I've got it loaded up on my Apple TV, and it looks and runs beautifully. And I had the old version on there too, but it was pretty bare bones. So yeah, I am enjoying this new version that has a ton of content in there. And I should mention also that it is for all ages. So there are a ton of in-depth documentaries in there for me and my watching. And there's also a lot of content for my kid as well. So yeah, NASA Plus, it's great. It's a newly updated app for just about every phone and streaming service out there. So definitely go check it out. I recommend it. That's it for T-minus for November 9th, 2023. For additional resources from today's report, check out our show notes at space.n2k.com. We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like T-minus are part of the daily routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector. From the Fortune 500 to many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth, mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester, with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. 
And I'm Maria Varmazes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. <laughs>